Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thanks for listening. All right, I hope everyone is having a good unofficial beginning of a very busy fall season. Uh, of course, in the defense community, that means it's trade show season, and so there's trade shows happening almost every week here for the next couple months. We had the Air Force Association uh, show last week. We have AUSA, the, the Army show, the largest of them all coming up here in a couple weeks. And of course, then we wrap up everything with AOC's 60th Annual International Symposium and Convention in December, uh, 11th to the 13th here in D.C. at the Gaylord National Harbor. So you can learn more about the agenda and how to register and all that at crows.org. Uh, I'll certainly have some guests on in the future to talk uh, to share a little bit more in detail about the agenda, some of the speakers, some of the discussion topics. Uh, the theme is advancing EMS superiority through strategic alliances and partnerships. So we, I expect there will be a heavy focus on you know our international partners and bringing them into the conversation, which is always great. It's a it's a great opportunity to bring the global community together. So it's always a great show. Looking forward to it. From the Crow's Nest, of course, will also be there. We will be recording episodes every day, speaking with some of the keynote speakers and other special guests that stop by. And then for those of you who are familiar with what we did with uh, AOC Europe, where we were live streaming using Twitter Spaces, uh, we're going to do that again uh, at AOC Convention. So we'll be live streaming on Twitter Spaces, you know, talking to exhibitors, subject matter experts on the floor uh, on a daily basis. So definitely want uh, have an opportunity to tune in there and looking forward to to the show this year. Now on to my guest for this episode. I am very pleased to have on the show with me AOC's new senior analyst, Matthew Thompson. Uh, Matt has a long career in EW and EMSO. Uh, he has experience in both the EA6B Prowler and the F-18G Growler. Uh, he has project management experience, instruction training, strategic planning and operations, the list goes on. And uh, I'll let him share a little bit more about his past. But without further delay, Matt, welcome to From the Crow's Nest. It's great to have you on the show for the first time. Hey, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's really nice to be here. I'm very excited to be uh, joining the uh, Association of Old Crow's team. So uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about your experience? Sure. Yeah. So I'm very excited to be that, you know, kind of retired operator looking to bridge that gap. So I am a, I'm a retired naval aviator. I've got about 3,000 flight hours and platforms with more than 400 uh, carrier rested landings. I did start my career off as a uh, ECMO in the EA-6B Prowler uh, and then transitioned to the uh, Prowler Tactics Instructor course. Uh, after that, I kind of made a move over to the Super Hornet platform flying F-18Fs for a bit. Uh, and then prepared to open the E18G Fleet Replacement Training Squadron. I opened VAQ-129 as the operations officer, did some uh, more electronic warfare work there. Then I went and moved over to the uh, the United Kingdom to fly Tornado GR4s, 
with the Royal Air Force for about three years. And uh, I'm really looking forward to contributing to the team all that I can. This is a, a great opportunity for listeners to understand because like, one of the things that we challenges that AOC had is really tapping into the operational expertise of our community. Uh, you Having you on the team brings you on board to kind of give you that that warfighter perspective. I found your, your your career very interesting because it does bridge the for the Navy EW uh, the, the, that uh, transition from the EA6B Prowler to the Growler. Uh, talk a little bit specifically about your experience as an, starting out as an ECMO on the Prowler, and you know getting a new aircraft F-18G Growler. It sounds like it's it, it's not a, simply a one for one transition. Obviously, a new airframe, new new uh, internal system has a lot more capability. Could you talk a little bit about that transition? Because that ties into a lot of what the Navy's doing as well as, as we'll get to in the future, the Air Force here with their new platform coming up. Yeah, so I think the uh, the biggest difference really is just the computing power and the digital, digital aspect of the airplane, right? So the EA-6B Prowler was a, you know, very steam gauge driven, very uh, man in the box. Uh, you know, at the time, there took four people to fly the Prowler. We had a pilot and then three ECMOs. Uh, one to kind of run the communications and the communications jammer, as well as two guys kind of running the jamming system in the back. Um, so it was very manual, very labor intensive. And, and what what years was that? Because my my claim to fame here, you know, for the Prowler was that I was able to actually fly in one for a couple hours. And so I I took the I was sitting in the navigator seat up, up front, but of course he had the ECMOs in the back. They and they had like laptops on their lap back in like. 2005 timeframe, um, it just did not look like it was ready for, you know, advanced uh, combat sometimes. It was just like an old aircraft, you know, trying to jerry-rig different systems into the into the aircraft. So what what year were you having that transition uh, as, as an ECMO? I, I first like, first got up there in about 2001, and then I, uh, you know, flew, did my full JO tour. So about five years later, about 2006, a set time and time frame, I headed over to, uh, to Virginia Beach to fly the Super Hornet. Um, so right around when I got back, probably about 2009, 2010 is really when we started putting the, uh, the growler program together, um, where, you know, we tried to figure out, uh, obviously the testing part and a lot of uh, other things had happened, but we were really trying to t- transition from that, you know, testing mindset to an operational usage training and, and, you know, trying to get the fleet ready for that transition. So that's about, really about the time frame. So what was, you know, looking back on your experience with that, what was, something or one aspect that the Navy really got right in terms of how they handled that transition? Because you always have to maintain readiness. You have to have everything, you know, prepared for that transition. What was something that they really did that you think, you know, other services could learn from in, in, in that regard? Well, I think actually they did, a, did quite a few things right. But I, I think the thing that they did well, like by far, is, is they really had a plan and they kind of stuck to that plan. Like we had a pretty good idea of when the airplanes were going to start showing up so several years prior to that, we started sending people like myself to other like Super Hornet squadrons to learn the Super Hornet and the ins and outs of that airframe before we came back and tried to then learn the electronic warfare aspect. Uh, we also had a really good timing for like the first transition squadrons, um, as well as some, you know, what we call student uh, cat- category one aviators or guys coming straight from flight school. So we had a nice mix uh, right off the bat. So I think that the timing of the transition worked out really well. Uh, it was done really nice. And if you kind of look at the the overall transition for all the squadrons, it was pretty smooth for the most part. So with, with some of those lessons learned, um, you know, when the Navy was proceeding to, you know, they'd made a decision to transition to the Growler, 
kind of the, I wouldn't want to say dirty little secret about it was that, you know, of course, they're going to continue, they're going to transfer the system, you know, the ICAP-3 capability onto the Growler, but they're going to keep the ALQ-99 jamming pod. And this was, you know, when that decision was made, it's like they, they were going to keep the 99 jamming pod until they could come up with a next generation jammer. And that would then replace the ALQ-99. That was, you know, early 2000s when some of that talk was happening. The ALQ-99 is still in operation today. It's going to be in operation for a long time still, for many years. But we are on the verge of, you know, we do have the next generation jammer coming up, finally. Talk a little bit about the the use of the ALQ-99 and what you're looking for from the next generation jammer as it comes on. But also, what is your perspective on how the Navy handled that? Because it feels like they've been talking about this for decades the need for this, and they were finally getting it. But is that fast enough? Was there something that they could have done better? No, I think that's a great question. So uh, I think, it, you know, the ALQ-99 pod discussion was always an interesting one. To be completely frank, some of the limitations for the ALQ-99 jamming pods were more of the receiver system and, and the way that we received information and how we were able to translate that out. So, uh, I mean, the pods had more capability, arguably, in the prowler than we were able to use. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that kind of allowed that gap to be okay. You know, I think the thing that's kind of slowed down progress potentially now is that, you know, digital signals, AI, you know, algorithms, they're moving so fast that as we try to get the uh, ALQ-99 pod and even the next-gen jammer pod, like, online, like, we're still, like, trying to update and keep up with the pace of things. Uh, I think it's really making it more difficult to get that online. Uh, Also, I think that in the ALQ-99 pod, there was a Ram Air Turbine on the front that kind of handled some of the power generation as well as some of the cooling. Also reduced a lot of gas and fuel efficiency, so they're trying to change that way that pod is designed. Uh, so I think that that is definitely changing some of the architecture. You know, I'm sure there's some technical limitations they ran on to trying to power that pod and different things. But if you were to see, like, the current next-generation jammer pod, it looks a lot, a lot more like a fuel tank with just kind of a straight cone you know, no ram air turbine on the front, things of that nature. So I think some of those things uh, have led to some technical challenges that have maybe slowed the timeline down more than we want. The development of the LQ99 is, is interesting because as we were putting together, uh, some, as we are currently putting together some of the episodes for our History of Crows, we did a lot of research in terms of the early years of the LQ99 back in 1972 when it was first brought on with the EA6B Prowler and some of the other aircraft um, one of the things that was fascinating, though, was, and you mentioned kind of this idea that you weren't able to use all the capability that you could with the ALQ-99. And that seemed to be almost a theme going back to the early 70s where it was built, but it was built almost, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally, it was built with room to grow in capability over the years, which made it a kind of a unique program at the time as well as probably today. From an operational perspective, what does that mean to have a system on board that not only can take care of the immediate threat, but also have room to grow in, in terms of capability moving forward as as Yeah, I think it's a I think it's an interesting discussion. You know, I think the pods at the time were ahead of the receiver set on the airplane. So so the limitation was really our ability to you know, find other things, geolocate them, and then actually put that information into the pods in the way that we wanted. Um, you know, the interesting part about that is the ALQ-218 in the growler is such an upgrade on the receiver side 
So now we have some more capability we can take advantage of on the ALQ99 side, but now we also need to increase that level of capacity and capability to kind of keep pace with what the 218 can do. So it's it's kind of, you know, definitely a stair-step approach. It would be great if they were married up a little better, I think, but that, I also think that's difficult to kind of manage. And, and so with the next generation jammer coming to the fleet, what are some of the things that you're watching closely and, and you know, you're going to use your position at the AOC now as senior analyst to, to, to talk about uh, some of the things that you're going to be looking at closely for the next generation jammer specifically? Yeah, so I think it's always, it's always interesting when you get a new capability, like especially attached to the airplane. You know, our first inclination, I think it's a little bit of human nature. We try to apply how we did things before using maybe the older technology without really recognizing what the new technology can actually get for us. We have to be really open-minded about, you know, new some new jammer techniques, maybe some new abilities and capabilities that we were unaware that we had. Uh, and also, you know, most of the operational testing uh, is done in a way that we're already kind of attacking scenarios. Uh, so we have to be a little more open-minded and creative. That's really where the weapon schools come in to kind of take what those things can do and say, hey, cool, we've done it this way for a long time, but this technology now gives us a different avenue or a new vector to explore. Uh, I think we have to be really open to that. And the next generation jammer can certainly bring a lot of those opportunities. We just have to kind of take a look at them. Great. So obviously the the next generation jammer coming on board is is, is a huge development. But there's another new development with the Air Force that I wanted to bring up to you. There was an article last night in Defense News written by uh, Stephen Losey, obviously talking about the arrival of the first EC-37B Compass Call Gulfstream model ar- arriving to the Air Force uh, and, and and getting ready. So that is finally on, on coming to the fleet uh, for the Air Force, which will be a, which is a huge milestone. Uh, talk a little bit about what this means for the Air Force, obviously your, your, your time in the Navy, you've probably worked closely at times with the Air Force and, and their EW operations. So what does this mean for the Air Force and what are, you, what are your thoughts on as the new uh, aircraft is, is coming on? Yeah, so I think it's a pretty exciting time. Obviously, when I was in the Navy, we were dealing with compass calls that were flying EC-130Hs, you know, kind of a, uh, the, the C-130 is obviously the Swiss Army knife for the military uh, and the advantage of the compass call of that platform was they had a lot of space. They had a lot of abilities to kind of change boxes, move things around. Uh, but they also had some things that maybe were less good. They, uh, you know, they had to fly or lower altitudes, usually slower um, and maybe less, you know, in a protected environment. So they really needed like airspace that was available for our use. Um, whereas now, you know, with the transition to the Gulf Stream, you know, they're going to have the capability to fly at higher altitudes, probably have a lot more digital type signals inside where they have the ability probably to receive and, you know, lo- locate things better as well as put signals in at more direct or kind of more spot locations as opposed to just kind of swaps, swaths of area. So I think it'll be a very interesting transition. And I think, you know, I haven't seen the specs yet, but my guess is it looks like they'll probably be able to have a smaller crew. Um, you know, manpower and labor is always something that makes it challenging, especially when you start looking at like flying hours and you know, different parts of trying to operate a squadron like that. So I think it'll be a very interesting uh, discussion in the next few years. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. 
uh, BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Yeah, when, when I was on, on Capitol Hill, you know, 20 years ago, we, we started a kind of an annual thing. It was called a Compass Call Awareness Day. And, uh, you know, I think that, that that really helped us out as, as congressional staff and members of Congress at the time. You know, we, we brought an aircraft to Capitol Hill. We usually parked it at Andrews and, you know, took people to, to see it. And it was really interesting to kind of take a tour of the, the back to kind of see how, how large that crew is, how many different uh, responsibilities are, are, are back there and how they have to work together. Um, really gave you a different sense of the EW operation than just looking at the outside of the plane, um, which, of course, you know, is is not the most attractive. But, you know, with the Gulfstream, obviously, they are reducing the crew size. I believe they're reducing at least some of the responsibilities, maybe in the li linguistics area. But obviously, as you're getting more into uh, information warfare, cyber operations, and so forth, there's going to be a lot of capability. Can you talk a little bit about Air Force EW in general has always, they do a lot of great things, but sustainability in, the, in some of those good 
uh, steps is, is a little bit harder to, to for them to, to maintain. But they're making a lot of progress. They have the they have this Compass Call aircraft. They have some great work being done at the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing. Talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the evolution of Air Force EW here in the recent year, couple years. Yeah, so I think Air Force EW is interesting. It's uh, it's always been a little cyclic, I would say. You know, obviously before they had the F-111, very good, you know, kind of jamming platform, not unlike the Prowler, you know, arguably a little faster plane, smaller crew, a little bit different capabilities. Uh, and then they kind of moved away from the EW, like for the most part. Um, and then they kind of came back with the Compass Call. They also, you know, have the uh, squadron up in uh, Boise, which kind of basically supplements the Growler squadrons up in Whidbey. So they kind of work together. So that's kind of like the... Air Force still dabbling in electronic warfare a little bit. Uh, but I think the, you know, the resurgence of the Compass Call and their ability to look at, you know, potentially putting, you know, different jammers on B-52s, again, the Army Swiss Army knife of everything. Um, you know, I think that over time they've realized that they have that requirement, that EW is something they need to kind of focus on. But I also think that at some point there's going to be a brand new airplane that's going to cost a whole lot of money. Uh, and they're going to kind of refocus the Air Force budget towards that, and then they're going to drop off that EW. So I think the cycle will continue um, as the technology in the airplanes kind of changes. But I, but I think the EW and the Air Force has always been very cyclic. And, and it would seem that the uh, EC-37B, the uh, Gulfstream model, it's in the Air Force's plans to be, that's, a, that's kind of a cross-mission, a multi-mission type of platform that they can use a lot of different ways Compass Call mission being one, but obviously other Elon SIGINT operations, it can be used differently and kind of be that next generation for other missions. What have you been hearing in terms of how the Gulfstream variant could be used in the Air Force throughout for different missions? Well, I think that's the advantage, the, the largest advantage, in my opinion, of, of transitioning from that, you know, hardware to digital software applications, right? So we can put it in a smaller box. We can make some software changes. You know, one of the things that the EC-130H, like if you ever walked in the back of it, you know, had lots of like racks that you would find like in a computer terminal. And when they needed a new capability, they would slap in a new box because there was no other good way to do it. You know, now that everything is kind of digital and it's, you know, software programming, uh, you know, like in the palm of your hand in your phone, you know, now we can make those changes and kind of figure out different capabilities kind of on the fly software wise. Uh, so I think that's really where you're going to see the changes. So, you know, if we need to do some linguistic work, as you mentioned earlier, or we need to, you know, check out some different signals here. Like that's more of a soft up software upgrade and less of having to reconfigure that airplane. So I think that's going to be a huge advantage of, of the new airplane, that new airframe being software driven. At the beginning of the show, you know, when you talked about the tra the Navy's transition from the Prowler to the Growler, one of the, the positives you said, you know, that you were an ECMO on the Prowler and then you went and you learned the F-18, how to fly the F-18 knowing that that was going to be the airframe that, you know, would house the new EW capability. Um, and you learned that that airframe, how it operated, everything. And then it, you obviously brought in the F-18G. I don't get the sense that that transition would be as smooth with the Air Force for this because it's not like they could have really, you know, could you talk a little bit about how they transition? Because there's not a Gulfstream mission or operation that they could really learn how to fly that airframe in that mission in advance of the, the the upgrade coming. So how, you know, what are some of the things that you're looking for from that in terms of transition? Because it's a new airframe. No one's ever flown it before. 
Yeah, that's a great question. And one I hadn't really thought about much, but uh, I can tell you, you know, I'll use some of the Prowler too, like Growler, um, some things maybe that that went less well, uh, that really I think they had the opportunity to rely on more. And that's really like the building of a simulator uh, because, you know, I guarantee like they have a good idea, like at the test level and, and that things, the capabilities that exist already uh, for that, for the new airframe. And I think the opportunity, if they build a good simulator, to kind of put the crew in there, really get them to start testing some planning and checking out some missions and trying different things before they actually get in the airplane and really see how it works, I think is a large opportunity. Um, it's probably one of the things that, you know, transition from the Prowler to the Growler was not done very well. Like our simulators lagged quite a bit behind. Uh, we had like, you know, super Hornet simulators, much like the F-18 guys did, but the, you know, electronic attack side was arguably quite a bit further behind. In fact, you know, we would go flying to be experiment because it was ahead of the, where the simulator would be. But I think the, you know, the compass call, if they get the simulator right, they could do a lot of training and really start to understand the systems before they go flying, which I think would be a huge upside. So, so you talked one of the positives about the compass call, obviously, is, is the digital capabilities and, uh, you know, the, the collection and processing of information data that, that it can receive. In today's warfare, obviously, speed of processing is critical. And as a segue, you know, we're recording this on September 13th, but uh, in this week's uh, AOC ECRO, you have an article talking about the opportunities present with artificial intelligence machine learning in the EW space, obviously focusing heavily on what it means to increase the speed with which you can collect and process and analyze and distribute that that information to the warfighter. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your article that you have in there? And then again, it, for those who want to read it, it's on available on AOC, crows.org, as well as Jet Online, but it's in the uh, the AOC's weekly eCrow newsletter. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it was, a, you know, I kind of have a feeling that the way that we process information and the amount of information and the things that we can see uh, is growing exponentially, uh, pretty much as computers and processing power continues to increase. And we've already got machine learning. We've got, you know, artificial intelligence helping us, like, look at data, make decisions. Uh, I think all of that is going to easily transition into the military scenarios. Uh, and I kind of touched a little bit on that on the article. I think there's always going to be, at least, you know, for a while, that man in the loop where we can't just let AI make decisions on their own. Uh, so, you know, but we're going to have the ability to see much more information, get a better idea of some scenarios and make decisions, not not necessarily, you know, better decisions, but that certainly faster decisions. Um, and, you know, it's still possible that some of those de decisions might be the wrong ones, but we'll be able to make them at a much faster pace. Uh, but I think it's also important to, you know, understand that the the enemy also has that, right? So they're also increasing their power and they're processing what they're seeing. Uh, so I think warfare in the digital space is going to be exponentially more aware. And I think that whoever can handle that volume of data uh, better will be more successful. You know, it's already, you know, as we jumped from the Prowler to the Growler, for example, just the amount of situational awareness and the more that we could see uh, that we would see, like, you know, we often made the joke in the Prowler, sometimes they're just flying around fat, no and happy because we didn't actually know what was going on outside the airplane. Uh, but as that, as that battle space grows and you get to see more of those things and you see more and more information of what's happening everywhere, now you have to have a way and a, a plan to kind of manage that data. And I think AI and machine learning is really one of the two of the ways that we can kind of solve that problem. One of the interesting aspects of AI is, you know, historically, you know, 
advanced technology is really driven out of DOD. Um, you know, the, the the next generation of whatever amazing technology is out there started somewhere in the defense community. Nowadays, it's it's happening in the commercial realm, and you look at AI and 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 the, its advances in the in the commercial uh, sector is really kind of leading the way with the the opportunities. Obviously, when we talk AI in a commercial context, in a consumer context, you know, we're talking, when we say speed, we're saying, hey, I want to download this video or this uh, app really quickly, you know, within seconds. Um, even that, though, in an opera- in a warfighting scenario is too slow. You need, in, in, in a millisecond, you need it before you even are aware that you need it. As we try to learn from the commercial sector about the possibilities of AI, how difficult is it to transition or apply commercial advances into a, a DOD, uh, a warfighting scenario? Yeah, so I think in in the warfighting scenario, you know, we always would like to have like near real-time information, like this, as close to what's actually happening as we can get uh, is what we would really like. That always lags, but AI is allowing us to get there. But if you like look in the uh, in the commercial sector, they're already using like near real time information for all sorts of things. You know, I think the challenge uh, is more in the politics side. You know, how do we how do we procure those things? Do we have you know historically uh, the Department of Defense procurement systems are relatively hard. There's a lot of budget work that has to be done. There's a lot of approvals. You know, it has to be in the quadrennial report. Like there's a lot of things that take time to get done. And the challenge with that is by the time we get those things executed, we're probably already behind again. So, you know, we figure we have to figure out how to be more open to, you know, reaching out to commercial platforms that are working faster than us, but still maintain that level of security. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a tight rope to walk. Well, and, and it seems to, it's one of the, you know, annuals important issues when you get into the congressional aspect of the defense budget, Obviously, Congress is the has the power of the purse. They are the authorizers of everything that DOD does. And so when you're talking about you know acquisition reform and, and policy reform, it's got to go through a lot of it's got to go through Congress and get their approval. And what you know, I was just talking to our team on congressional affairs the, earlier this week, you know, talking about some of the uncertainty, you know, with the defense budget these days. It's really hard to get landmark, real substantive change in the acquisition system. We've tried it for a number of years, but it's really been more about just rearranging deck chairs when it comes down to it because the politics are so complicated. And now you throw in this kind of annual game of the end of the fiscal year and CRs and so forth. You know, we just constantly kick the can down the road, which has a huge negative impact on our ability to plan for programs in DOD, as well as, you know, get anything significant done. The politics are too complicated. So how do, how do we, I don't know if you, even that's a question, but how do, how do we uh, kind of turn the corner on that? Because otherwise we're going to be stuck playing catch up and that's not a, a place you want to be in modern combat. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question. I was reading a, an article the other day um, and one of the ways is uh, actually something kind of unique. I don't know if it's unique actually, but it's something that the Army is currently doing. They've currently just awarded $6.5 million to small businesses like different commercial companies uh, on basically an 18-month program to develop some machine learning, AI kind of things that the Army would like to incorporate future into their awards. So I think that, that, that 
that may be one avenue where we reach out and we write a contract for like a short period of time and we pick, you know, a few select vendors to have them come up with creative ideas. Uh, and at the end of that period, like incorporate that information uh, into how we may move forward. But I still think there needs to be more fusion and more collaboration. I, I don't think that we can just, you know, hand pick a few companies from time to time. I think it's got to be more of a, a full scale approach to that procurement process and, 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 and incorporating like that technology into all aspects of how we do things. So with that, with that, you know, we talked a little bit about the Navy and the Air Force. I wanted to give some equal time here to the Army. Then you just mentioned the Army, some, something that they did with, uh, you know, the small business uh, contracts. Uh, you know, what are what are you seeing from them? Uh, you know, that's interesting that they have have an approach that is is you know getting people's attention. You know, what are you seeing from an Army perspective? I know you have a Navy background, so I don't want to you know, put you in a position where you're making enemies this, this, this close. But, uh, you know, what are some of your thoughts on uh, where the Army's going? You know, I've been reading up a little bit more uh, on this Project Lynchpin. It's a uh, an AI intel system that the Army is currently testing out. There's been a few articles over the summer. Uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head a little bit around what they're trying to accomplish with it. Uh, but also earlier in the year, you know, they did uh, have a new chief that got brought in. They brought a uh, Brigadier General Wayne Baker in for the uh, program executive office for electronic warfare and sensors. So that kind of happened in April. So it's probably about that six month window where he's been in there. So we'll start to see a little bit what his policies are going to be uh, and how we're going to continue to uh, approach that from the Army's perspective. And I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to kind of discuss that more, you know, toward the end of the, the year when, when we get into our annual symposium. We're getting short on time, but just wanted to kind of come back to you and talk a little bit about, you know, current events. You know, so you know, looking out around the world, you know, obviously we have the ongoing war over in Ukraine. Russia is facing an increasingly uphill struggle to accomplish what it set out to do, which is which is good. Um, of course, you then on the other side of the, you know, you have China. Uh, and and some of the uh, posturing that's going back and forth there. So what are you what are you seeing from an EW perspective? You know what are you as you look at these two theaters and and developments? What are you watching closely uh, in terms of the role that EW is going to be playing in in both of these uh, areas? I always think that money and people drive those things. So you know, I'll start with China first. Uh, I think they have a lot of money, and I think they have a lot of people. Um, so they, you know, continuously upgrade all of their systems, including EW. So I think that they've been very forward leaning uh, in basically making SAM systems, also in making early warning systems, uh, also ways to combat, you know, warfare things that we've used, especially specifically electronic warfare platforms of the past. So I think that China is, you know, looking at all of those things. I would say currently Russia arguably has a fair amount of money, but arguably less than China and their manpower is kind of focused on other things. So I think that they're kind of in a little bit of a lull, uh, even though historically they've been like the largest producer of surface air missile systems in the world. You know, they haven't really put out anything relatively new in a few years. And I think that trend is probably going to continue a little bit. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're working on something that's going to come out in the next three to five years, maybe. But, but I think that they're definitely focused on Ukraine first. So Great. In closing, you know, I just wanted to let the, you know, I really do appreciate you taking time to to come on the show. Uh, for our listeners, you know, this will this will not be the last time either. Uh, you know, we'll we'll have you back on regularly to to kind of share your thoughts. Um, what are some of the topics? Your job is to help provide that base of knowledge to our from industry, military, academic perspective. What are some of the uh, topics that you're going to be looking into? You know, here in the fall 
as we uh, approach uh, the uh, annual convention in December? So uh, that's a great question. For the most part, I will retain my kind of operator hat uh, as I look into different things. I'm always curious to see, you know, what tools are being released, how they're being employed. Uh, I'm a huge believer in uh, the joint warfare environment. You know, as my part of my PTI course, like we went and worked with the Air Force Weapons School. So I like to see how those joint things are working together. Uh, and there'll be a few other articles that I'm putting together to kind of, you know, help focus on those things. Uh, I can give you a list of those in a second. And so what we're going to be doing here in the in the future, and uh, it's really kind of exciting as we look at uh, the the podcast specifically, you know, we're, we're, we have plans to grow here in, in the into 2024. Uh, listenership continues to go up, which you really appreciate everybody's support. Um, we're going to be increasing the number of episodes coming to you, um, you know, having some sort of uh, some degree of subscriber content as well. Uh, in addition to everything that's typically free. But, you know, Matt, we'll have you on then on a regular basis, somewhat regular basis, kind of share your thoughts about what, you know, what you're hearing from the guests, what we're talking about from an AOC perspective or here on the podcast. So uh, really great. So, but you wanted to have a, a list here of, of a few topics. Yeah, sure. A few things I think interesting are, one, I think that, you know, cyber warfare is growing rapidly, but I think it's also important to understand that's different than electronic warfare. I think there's going to be some overlap. And I think, you know, that's certainly that requires some investigation or discussion. I'm curious about the trends. Uh, you know, are we going to move away from IADs? You know, are we going to move back towards that? Uh, I'm very curious, like how the, the electromagnetic spectrum attacks are going to change. Obviously, the spectrum isn't going to change. It is what it is. But there's different, you know, frequencies being used, used in different ways. You know, those kind of ethical and I think, you know, one, it's, it's going to continue to be, and I kind of hinted at it earlier, I think the ethical implications will be an interesting one too. As decisions are made, you know, digitally faster, maybe by AI, as we try to reduce the number of people that are employed, like how do we make those decisions and at what levels are those made at? I think that would be a very interesting discussion as well. I was having the, uh, that discussion with my my last guest, uh, Dr. Alex Valente, when we were just touching on it briefly, but that, that ethical conversation is is because of our history and our role as more or less like a, a non-lethal technology where, you know, we were more seen as an enabler, uh, we're not used to having those types of conversations uh, as much uh, because we're not, we weren't maybe not in the in the leading edge of some of the, the ethical conversations because we were more of a support role in a lot of ways. But it seems like this is going to be a topic because of the importance of the spectrum as kind of a first in, last out type of capability, you know, it's where the future conflicts are going to be uh, won and lost. Uh, we have to kind of be on the forefront of that conversation. It's kind of an interesting new place to be at. Well, I think in the, historically, we've always had like rules of engagement for places that we've employed. But, you know, I can make the argument that some of that is going to be a little more vague or we're maybe not going to be as clear as what those rules of engagement might be when it comes to machine learning, AI, decision making, uh, so I think that is definitely going to be an interesting discussion. I'm also a little curious to see how, you know, we recently stood up the Space Force, like how that's all going to integrate. Like as we as we potentially move the battle space, you know, outside Earth's atmosphere, like how is that going to change things? I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting uh, potential for how that plays out in the future. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. Matt, thank you so much for taking time to join me here on From the Crow's Nest. Uh, great to sit down and talk with you and uh, looking forward to having you on again real soon. Thanks. I enjoyed it a lot. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I again want to thank Matt Thompson for joining me today. 
Uh, he will be a regular guest here in the future. But uh, if you have any follow-up questions or comments for him, you can go to crows.org and contact him through the website. Uh, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTC and Host. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.